All right. Well, welcome to Jesus at the Table, our young marrieds class slash anyone who wants to come join us is welcome. Whether you're single, young, old, have kids, don't have kids, whatever. Um, and so the, the way this class is going to be is it's going to kind of be, when you come in next week, the room's going to look a little bit different. Um, going to have different tables with chairs, and it's going to be more of a, the first half is kind of going to be a coffee hour where you hang out, talk to each other, get to know each other, visit, um, get coffee from downstairs. We'll be bringing in food every morning to share. And then the second half, we'll be looking at a story of Jesus sharing a meal with someone, read it a couple times, and have some discussion questions about um, and discuss why we think that meal is important and what Jesus was doing there. Um, so I'm excited. I think it's a good opportunity to both build community from our young, for our young adults here at Brentwood, which has been kind of lacking because so many of our young adults go to West End, um, and also talking about some things that I think are really important, as, as you'll see in this, this lesson today. So, um, all right, well, let's get started. So, let me, I'll mention that at the end in case some more people can come in. So, meals, right? The title of this class is Jesus at the Table. So, well, there you go. So, what is a memory you have... No, that's not a stool. That's not a I need a stool. I want to sit up tall, you know, not not down. That's fine. Um, so what's an important memory you might have about a specific meal in your life? It could be a type of food. For example, at Christmas, we always eat this. Or it could be one specific... I remember I met with this friend after years, and we... Just had this wonderful meal. So what's something that might come to your mind when you think of a memory associated with the meal? When I was uh, growing up, when I was little, sometimes we would, um, if like, we had time on schedule, my family would sit down and we would always go around the table and talk about like, something we learned that day. You know, mm -hmm. Something we always like, we were kind of just stuck in my memory as yeah. um, just kind of a, a new tradition that we had for a little bit there. Just for like a, maybe even just a year's time span. And then family would get kind of worked out that way. But it was really good. Awesome. She was this, maybe think of um, go visit my grandparents. And mm -hmm. In Mississippi, and my grandmother would have like all the classic Southern food, like hot and ready when we got there. Just like she had fried chicken, and you know, gotten corn from the garden, and just like very traditional. And you know, just the, the effort that she put into preparing a meal for kids who would have been happy with you know frozen chicken. Like <laughs> it was always hired even breakfasts um, because they were kind of the day that was, it was a little bit slower and like, we could take time to just be together. Um, and we always had waffles with a homemade chocolate syrup. We had to take a good memories. Yeah, mine would be in the fall time, my mom would make her 
home plate, uh, homemade clam chowder. Oh. Red Bulls, so we would have that sit around the fire, so. Very good. Is she from New England or just? No. <laughs> we live, we live, uh, grew up near San Francisco. Oh, uh, okay. So. She is a chef, so the yeah, expectations are a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Is she just like. Yeah, I, w I would say um, my grandma's breakfasts. That's kind of what she was known for. So anytime we go down to Cookville to visit her, you know, we, we definitely want to make sure we spend the night. So we wake up and get that good, good breakfast in the morning. Um, and it's just special time, you know, to have all the, the cousins around, aunts and uncles, you know. And she makes just this wonderful southern breakfast in the morning. Pro tip, use cream corn as you would gravy. Put it on top of hash browns, put it on top of a biscuit. Um, cream corn as gravy is a pro move. So. What other memories of food or specific meals do we have? thread I once saw of this um, woman. She's her, her father was from India, moved to the U.S., and one of his favorite things was Olive Garden, an Italian food. <laughs> and so, like growing up, that he just loved Olive Garden. So she ended up becoming a doctor or something, and like it's just she eventually was, you know, had enough money that she wanted to take him on a trip to Italy. And after being there for like three days, he was like, this is horrible. Because he wanted the super greasy, buttery, Americanized version of Italian food. And when he was over there, it was the healthy, fresh, you know, the, the real Italian food. Um, but yeah, all, all Garden, especially growing up. Um, do you have a memory associated with a specific meal? Yeah, I was trying to think. And I know I've answered this question before, but I don't remember what I said, so I can't cheat. Um, can, you, can you circle back to me? Is it, does anyone else have one? Well, I think it's about everyone else. Oh, so answer. it's just me. It's just me. Okay. I was just giving you the floor if you I'll wanted. Answer. I know. Okay, well, there we I go. I really don't answer. have any growing up. I'm much older than the rest of you. <laughs> but um, so growing up, 
we were very poor and I was an only child and so we really didn't have like sit down meals. Mm -hmm. um, but then I grew up and had my own family and so one thing is um, my kids expect the same thing every holiday. Like if I don't make exactly the same <laughs> meal, they're like, why didn't you make whatever? I'm like pegged into making the same thing. But we kind of do, we sit around and um, we do highs and lows. Like what's your mm -hmm. high for today? What's your low for today? And even, so I have a five-year-old, she's the youngest, and she still, she does it. She even likes to do it too. So. It's awesome. Okay. I have a few that are coming to mind. I was thinking holiday meals, of course, and this feels very, this picture feels very Thanksgiving-esque mm -hmm. for some reason. Even though it's not really Thanksgiving food, that's what it was giving me. Um, and honestly, something I was thinking about is one of the first things, I guess, the first Thanksgiving after Mandy was born. Um, and it is this, like, fun thing that you get to bring your child into of, like, as, we just like come on this one day a year and we just eat so much food all day. And that's all mm -hmm. you do. You just go from one house to the next and you just eat, eat, eat. And obviously like he won't remember that or I don't even know if he really ate Thanksgiving meal that year. Um, sure he nibbled. Um, I was just thinking about how that is so special and important because it is this like introduction to the family in a lot of ways. And this like it's like one of the few times a year where like more of your family is all together. Yeah. Um, yeah, just thinking about not really there's not really like a specific food that's coming to mind when I think about that meal. Um just thinking about this idea of like bringing everyone to the table. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just really cool when there's like new life that you get to introduce. And getting to pass those traditions on. Right. Or, or in your case, making new traditions, right? To your own family. So, why do we think there's something so important to us as humans about sharing meals? What What is it about sitting down and eating with one another that creates intimacy, creates memories, creates um, community? What, what are y'all's thoughts around that? Seems like it's always been that way across every culture. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's just an example set before us by uh, every major civilization that they teach yeah. about in school. You know, there's shared meals is important. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess we have that sort of precedent that it matters. Uh, and then we have our own experiences to back that up as well. Yeah. I think food is one of those things that's like, it makes you feel good, whether it's like because the nutrition or the warmth or being cold, depending on the season. And as a mother, nourishing your children, and because food gives you those like feel good feelings and you're sitting down and with the people that you love, you can't help but feel connected and mm -hmm. happy when you're all together. I think it's an inherent place of safety too, a table. Uh, like prepares for me a table in the presence of my enemies. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking about if I, like, I trust you enough to kind of let down my guard and to eat and do something kind of more bold, more bold, more mm -hmm. exposing. Mm -hmm. Kind of builds that. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump off of that. I was thinking that too, that vulnerability that it takes to 
sit, it's not like you're doing other things. You're just at the table, you're just eating, you're just being with people. And so mm -hmm. it is this different way of connecting where lots of times in the rest of our lives, we're, we're pretty good at multitasking while being with other people. Um, and when there's a good plate of food in front of you, it's kind of all you're focused on is that and the people that are sitting around you. So I do think it is this way of kind of letting your guard down um, and just being more connected than you might be at another time. Yeah, it's a time, especially in my family, it's a time to unsettle, wind down, and especially with like, you know, our culture, we're just so busy like doing the next thing, the next thing every five minutes. It's an excuse to, you know, just to sit down and have a conversation with your family or friends and tell each other about your day. Yeah. Uh, what sort of problems you're going through. Yeah, it, it is a time for you to in that sense. I think for me too, like making someone's favorite moment is a really satisfying way to like serve them, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think there's definitely a moment of like service and hospitality that goes with like inviting people in your home and being vulnerable that way and making food that's like meeting their basic needs but also like hopefully some other level needs yeah that's that's what I was thinking of and you know it's kind of implied that maybe one day they would invite you to their home right <laughs> and it's 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 not a trans it's not like a transaction like all right well Venmo me for for dinner you know it's not like this but it's just this like I'll take care of you and you'll probably one day take care of me and like we're not going to worry about any kind of economic transaction or any kind of like keeping tally it's just you know it's part of being in the community is we occasionally will make you know cook food for each other I was thinking about that and kind of with our life group like that's one of the main things we do when we get together is we eat <laughs> every time like uh, even in the middle of a pandemic I've got dessert and coffee that are individually wrapped, you know, desserts, you know, uh -huh. I kind of wore masks while I was preparing them, but like that's just important to us. Mm -hmm. um, but usually, like, not things are so back up, everybody participates. Like, it's always a potluck. It's probably a themed potluck, but um. it's always a potluck um, kind of situation. So we're caring for each other. I just kind of just kind of bouncing off what y'all are saying, but we're caring for each other um, while we're gathering together. And, like I said, talking about how the weeks are going in that kind of thing. Yeah, it can be like really equalizing because yeah. everyone can bring something. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe someone can afford to bring the meat that week. Um, and the person who can't can bring the bread. You know, like it isn't this, and like they're both equally important at the table. Um, it isn't like you wouldn't want a table full of meat. Maybe you would. Meat's delicious, but. I'm thinking, like, you know, you want a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and so it's great that everyone can bring their own important, special part mm -hmm. to the meal. Yeah. So switching to the Bible now, what what are some stories, not just, you know, this class will be focusing on the Gospel specifically, but throughout the whole expanse of Scripture, stories about meals that maybe you relate to especially, or you think, man, that's a, there's some powerful truth in that story. Meals or just food in general. Right. 
So I thought it was interesting that in the introduction to Job, they're eating at the dinner table, sons and daughters, their sons with their wives, and Job and his wife. And, but they're sitting at the table, and that, that, that that's the scene where everything goes downhill, because that's when oh. the building collapses, children die. But I, I was like, why, why do we start, why does the book begin with them eating a meal together? Mm -hmm. Is it to heighten the, the conflict that like ensues after that? Because it's this kind of peaceful, safe yeah. space. It's yeah. like juxtaposed with chaos. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Huh. That one was not on my list. So. <laughs> <laughs> it impress anyone. But it will be now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he is a PhD student in Old Testament. So. Yeah. So fair. I mean, obviously, like, the big ones are, like, Last Supper, mm -hmm. Passover. Um, but I always think about the way of Cana. Yeah. Um, and we don't we don't always think about that as a meal because the story is really around the wine. <laughs> Somebody say that's a meal. Um, important part. That's an important part of the meal. Um, but just this way that <laughs> I lo I love the interaction between Mary and Jesus and that story and how she is kind of pushing him to do this. He's like, it's not it's not time. Like I don't need to I don't need to I don't need to do a miracle yet. Like. Let's just hang on. Um, and she's like, no, you need to do it now. Um, and it's this way of serving these people at this wedding. And it's this way of, we, I know we talked about this a lot, so I feel like I'm cheating. But it's this, it's this way of saying, like, I don't want these people to be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really protective of the uh, bride and groom and the family. Um, and... I don't know, I just think about how how tender that is. Yeah. in um, this way of stepping in, in this way of serving someone, in this way of protecting someone in a time where they would be vulnerable and they might not even know it. Mm -hmm. um, like I think about like if there were things that go wrong on someone's wedding day, most of the time they don't really know about it. And so it was this really interesting way for Jesus to step in and serve in a way that the bride and groom may never have found out about. Yeah. Um, I'm sure they love that. Except when brides are always. Yeah, they would know. They would know. They would be all in it. I think about the feeding of the 5,000. Um, mm -hmm. And just because we talked about the providing for someone else and kind of how, uh, like, how vulnerable that is and caring that is. Um, and that's the Jesus on such a large scale, caring about the people's physical needs too, mm -hmm. and kind of acknowledging that they need to be taken care of before they can they can even consider sort of uh, you know, so that's always something that's kind of strikes me in fact, is that it's it, it reminds me that it's more than just a spiritual, like a physical need is mm -hmm. Thoughts going along with this, but I just thought of the, the feast in the book of Esther, mm -hmm. specifically when she kind of gives a couple of feasts before she even asks what she wanted to ask him about, like buttering up the guy before. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, hey, what are you doing this? Yes. 
I also have one plus one. Um, I don't know why this one always comes to mind, but in Daniel, where the, um, you know, they were they were only eating vegetables, right? Mm -hmm. They were eating the meat, and then mm -hmm. they were still successful um, and like strong and nutritionally provided for. Um, and I don't know, like it makes me think of like the, the experiences I have working in child welfare and like, a lot of kids being really not nourished well, but somehow they were still okay and they were still like taken care of. Like I really mm -hmm. do believe that that has an impact. Like, um, <laughs> I Obviously not like changing the food and <laughs> mm -hmm. your body, but like somehow making something that doesn't make sense to us like okay. Mm -hmm. So let's let's walk through some of these. Um, you know, the, like I said, this class is just focusing on the gospel. So in the first class today, I wanted to go through um, the Old Testament and the non-gospel parts of the New Testament and just look at some of these these concepts around food, eating, meals that we see all throughout um, the body of the text. So, y'all may know, what, what was the first command that God gave people after being created? Any guesses? Be fruitful and multiply. The second command, actually really technically the second and third command, is eat. So in Genesis 1, after saying, you know, be fruitful, multiply, spread throughout all the earth, then says, you know, every fruit of the land or tree of the land, vine, don't remember the text exactly, I give to you to eat. And then in Genesis 2, it literally says, at least the translation I read, then God commanded them, you know, eat every tree, you know, is good for you, except there's that one you shouldn't eat, right? And so, kind of, you could say, one of our main purposes as humans is to eat. There's something about, and you know, if we didn't eat, we would die. So, yeah, eating is very important. Um, and so, you see all this beautiful fruit in the garden, right? Um... And, but there's the forbidden fruit. So I think it's really interesting that somehow through the act of eating, right, there's something about the act. It wasn't there was a special stone that Eve touched or a special, like, lake she swam in or there wasn't, it wasn't that the snake itself told her the knowledge, hey, yada, 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 right? Something about eating, something about, like, embodying that knowledge inside you um, I, think, I think that's really interesting. There's, it's interesting that that's how kind of knowledge of good and evil and sin entered the world was through eating. Um, it's also, you know, the curse, one of the curses that Adam has is now you can't just go around picking fruit and eating it. But you have to work at the land. You have to plant seeds. You have to, you know, do agriculture now. You can't be a hunter-gatherer anymore. Um, and that's, that's hard work, you know, that's, it says the ground will struggle against you. Through Cain and Abel, right, we see this kind of like, does God have a preference when it comes to meat versus vegetables? What's, 
what's going on in this story? Why does God dislike Cain's veggies and instead likes Abel's meat? Um, you know, I, I think it more has to do with the, pe- the type of people who grew produce tended to live in the valleys and the floodplains and the rich soil. They built hierarchies, built palaces, built walls. While your shepherds were out living on the margins, living in the mountains, you know, far away in the deserts. Um, and it may be God showing God's preference for those people, living on the outside, on the margins of society, not the people building monuments for themselves. Um, but you're welcome to your own interpretation. After the ark, right, we see this new covenant, the Noahide covenant. Um, something, because I was reading the text when I was writing this, um, Noah gets off, offers a sacrifice, and it talks of a smoothing aroma to the Lord. Uh, so God smelt the burning meat, smelt the barbecue. Sometimes, you know, you might be in your backyard, and you're like, man, someone in my neighborhood is cooking something good. <laughs> I want to figure out what house that is, because you just smell that delicious smell. Again, we're commanded to eat. Um, another eat command this time opening all of the all of the animals. You can eat not just the fruit, but the animals too. And then as, this never really stood out to me, but it's directly after this that God talks about God's bow as a sign of that. Now, I never really thought of a rainbow as like a bow you would use to hunt an animal to eat it, right? But it's interesting, and I'd have to do like some more research in the scholarship, if it's because it looks like it's the same word used for a bow that you would shoot an arrow with. Um, and so God's bow being across the sky, the rainbow, has that symbol. Then we see as we go, you know, further throughout the Torah, right, when the three angels, the three messengers of God show up to Abraham, what, what does he tell Sarah to do? He says, go start baking bread, we'll make some food for you all. So they bring them in, host them, um, and that's kind of a sign of Abraham's great faith, right? Um, poor, poor Esau. Have you ever had a stew so good that you're like, man, I would, I would give my birthright away from that. I would, I would risk getting disowned and losing my inheritance for that good, good bowl of soup. Must have been a pretty pretty phenomenal stew. But you see like an exchange happening over over this stew. Um, and then we have the Passover meal, right? Um, the first Passover, right? And then every year, God commands, says, you will follow this. You will continue to have this meal in memory and commemoration of me liberating you from slavery, right? And, you know, fast forward a thousand-ish, more or less, years, right? And you see Jesus has that same meal right before he liberates us from slavery through his death and resurrection, defeating death, right? Um, just like God defeated the Egyptians and liberated the, Egypt, the Israelite slaves. And so this meal is the way they commemorate that. It's not... You know, maybe there's some song, maybe there's some dance, but the meal is the most important part of that, of that commemoration. And then as they're wandering in the wilderness, 
um, this strange stuff starts falling from the sky. And they're like, what the heck is this, right? Um, and God cares for them in the desert, because they can't, you can't grow crops in the desert. You can't um, survive like that. And so this manna from heaven, my, my hot take is that manna is actually um, communion, and they're eating the body of Christ, but that's, uh, you know, that, that's a hot take right there. Um, and then after the deliverance of the Torah, of the law, right? You see all these different, all these different laws about eating or around food. You have the sacrificial laws about how you would sacrifice goats or cows or doves or grain, right, in order to repent from your sins. And there's all these different laws about what the priests can eat, how they can eat it, what needs to be left for God. And you also have the dietary laws, right? And this idea of clean food versus unclean food. What you're allowed to eat versus what, no, you shouldn't eat pork. You shouldn't eat uh, shellfish. And there's also these charity Sabbath laws, right? When you're threshing your field, if something falls, just leave it for the poor. You know, and they can come by and collect what fell on the, fell on the ground. Um, you should give of your abundance to other people. You should let your land lay fallow every so often and just let the land also um, be recipient of that Sabbath. So throughout the Old Testament, we see David and Goliath. David was the world's first Uber Eats driver. Bet, bet you didn't know that. <laughs> The world's first Uber Eats driver, um, his dad said, hey, here's a bunch of food, go give it to your brothers. And so, you know, imagine the Uber Eats driver showing up to your house and then beating up someone who was, like, attacking you. Mm -hmm. that, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, so that's basically the story of David, as he showed up and was like, is he bothering you? All right, well, me, me and God, we got something to say to this guy. Um, all right, here's, here's the question. We know the story of a prophet whose name starts with Eli um, and a widow with a lot of oil. Is it Elisha or Elijah? Who, who thinks it's Elijah and the widow? Who, who thinks it's Elisha and the widow? All right, y'all, so, let's, let's try that again. I need, I need everyone to vote. Do you just want us to pick one if you don't know? If you don't know, just pick one. So raise your hand for Elijah. All right, raise your hand for Elisha. All right, guess what? Y'all are all right. There are actually two stories, um, two different widows, each involving Elijah and Elisha. So it was a trick question. In the Elijah story um, is when there's a famine, and um, he goes to her house, and she says, well, I'm literally collecting sticks to bake one more loaf of bread. And me and my son are going to die, because that's all we have. He says, you know, you have this oil and this flour. They're going to keep going until the famine's over. And you're not going to run out. In the Elisha story, he shows up. And it seems like her husband was kind of his apprentice, his follower, something. And he had died. And she was like, you know, my husband, your servant, has died. What will you do for me? And he said, you know, go borrow all of your neighbor's jugs of oil. Start pouring your little jug of oil, and it will fill up all of them. Because I think her husband had a lot of debts, had to be repaid. And then 
sell those and that will repay your debt. So there's actually two stories of each of them and a widow and the oil that didn't run out. Um, which is really interesting. I forgot to put this in, but in somewhere in Leviticus or one of those places, man, do you remember? It, it talks about the oil never running out. And like this, ne this always flowing oil, right? And so you see here, you know, the widow's from Zarephath. She's not an Israelite. She's outside of the other. And then in Luke 4, when Jesus kind of delivers his first sermon, right, he references Elijah and the widow of Zarephath and that, that continual flowing of oil um, comes up again. And of course, like Emily mentioned, Daniel and Elijah, Shadrach, and Abednego, or, yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, eating vegetables, right? And them saying, we're not going to eat the food of the empire, right? We're not going to eat the McDonald's and pizza rolls, <laughs> but the real stuff, the good stuff, that'll actually give us nutrients, not what the empire tells us we need to and all throughout the prophets, as we talked about last fall, if you were in our class, you see all kinds of different imagery around food, agriculture, eating, um, etc. So Amos, Joel, and Micah, and but many more uh, prophets have that. And then, good timing. Um, and then it comes to the New Testament. So in the Gospels, there are 15 different stories of Jesus having a meal, or talking about a meal, right? And those come from 28 different texts throughout the four Gospels. Um, so, you know, one of my professors at Vanderbilt, she would say that, um, you know, Jesus ate and drank all throughout, all over the New Testament. You know, she's like, he probably was, probably had a beer gut, probably was kind of, <laughs> kind of chubby, because people were like, man, you're, you're master, you're, your mentor, he eats all the time, doesn't he? And they're like, yeah, he, he do be eating. He, he likes to eat. Because um, that's how he connected with people, right? Um, the day of Pentecost, right, talks about them breaking bread daily and sharing everything. I actually just saw this tweet. I'm going to read y'all. Um, this is a letter from... A, Aristides, a pagan Roman official, to Emperor Hadrian, uh, from who ruled from 117 to 138 AD, so kind of a hundred-ish years after Jesus died, who was seeking to outlaw Christianity on the nature of the Christians he had arrested so far. So, you know, this really reflects this. The Christians love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If a man has something, he gives freely to a man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, Christians take him home and are happy, as though he were a real brother. They do not consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit of God. And if they hear that one of them is in jail or persecuted or professing in the name of the Redeemer, they all give him what it needs. If it is possible, they bail him out. If one of them is poor and there isn't enough food to go around, they fast several days to give him the food he needs. 
This is a real and a new kind of person. There is something divine in them. And it says that Aristides uh, converted to Christian Christianity shortly after penning this letter. Um, and so even our haters, right, from early on said, man, there's, there's something, something crazy about these people. Um, with Peter's vision, right, kind of undoing the clean versus unclean dichotomy. All throughout Paul's letters, he uses analogies around food, right, to make larger spiritual points. He talks about, you know, milk versus meat when it comes to, like, new Christians versus um, wiser Christians who, you know, how to give each which. Talks about what to do with meat sacrificed to idols. Um, and then talks about the fruits of the Spirit and the flesh. And I'm sure there's many more I could have come up with. And so just like the story started with fruit in a garden, it ends with fruit in a garden city. And in Revelations 21 or 22, I can't remember exactly, talks about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and there's this living river that flows through the middle of the city, and lining the river are uh, trees with 12 fruits um, that they ripen, you know, throughout all the year. So, like, they're always ripe fruit um, for people to eat versus, you know, you know anything about fruit it like ripens once a year for like a window of a couple weeks to a month and that's your opportunity to eat it um, but here it's like no no it's it's always there this is a painting of Christians sharing um, the Lord's Supper communion Eucharist right um, this is painted in the catacombs below Rome when they were forced to flee during times of persecution so for the, our last couple minutes of class, um, why is sharing meals important to God? Because clearly it comes up all the time in the Bible, right? Um, through stories of God and God's peoples, right? What, what do we think it is about that that God cares about? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I think that the, the point about the meals are a big theme is relationship and or relationships. And I think that God, I mean, sometimes we get so wrapped up in God being some sort of idea or Christianity just being some uh, religion of ideas, but God is so much more about seeing, seeing, uh, the divine in other people, seeing Jesus in other people, and the only way to do that is to have relationships with others, and a big part of that is eating together. Yeah. So I, th I think when you're in those moments, you are encountering, or you are in the midst of God uh, through other people, mm -hmm. that act of sharing guilt. Oh, no, it's okay. I was thinking that a lot too, and just this idea that. It doesn't matter who you are, like you can come to the table and like having the relationship is like, like this is the way to build that relationship and it, you know, I feel like so much of what we talk about is that you know, 
Jesus ate with sinners. You know, he wasn't going around finding the people who were like the best of the best. Um, and I think that that's really important to God is to say like, hey, you know, what if you ate with the person that is least likely to be invited to the table? Mm -hmm. Um, what if you took time to build a relationship with that outcast person? Um, and I feel like that's just really important, and I think mm -hmm. in a, sharing a meal is one of the best ways to do that. And so why is breaking bread together sacred? It's not just something important to humans, and like the way we relate to one another? Or is there something deeper, something spiritual about the act of breaking bread together and sharing the meal? It goes beyond just the physical relationships and nourishment. I'll, I'll mention this before, or why y'all are thinking. Um, so if y'all know West End, the West End campus is right next to uh, an Orthodox Jewish synagogue. And so, and then there's a Methodist church right on the corner. And so the three churches kind of have like a club <laughs> where the, the main pastors, you know, from each one meet every other Wednesday morning, maybe like every third Wednesday. I forget. I don't know if it's monthly, bi-weekly, but they meet regularly. And so Rabbi Saul one time was showing us around and took us to the mikvah, which is like their baptismal pool. And was telling us about, you know, its uses. And it's used, there's three times it's used. Um, so it's used after a woman is finished with her time of the month as a way of cleansing. After a woman has a child. And then whenever you buy new dishes, you go and you wash those dishes in the mikvah. Because the plate is the conduit through which, like, the food enters your mouth. And that needs to be holy. That needs to be blessed, set apart. And so I'm like, that is such a cool theology. This idea of the plate needing to be holy because the plate is how the food enters our body. Um, and so I, I love that theology. I think that's really, really special. So yeah, do y'all have any closing thoughts on any of these two questions?